Welcome to the Real Life Resilience Podcast. Stories of recovery from life's most difficult trauma with Stacy Brookman. If you don't make sense or resolve the issues of the past, the past will come and haunt you in your day-to-day life. It will linger and beg for some kind of just open that door and resolve those issues. But again, once you resolve, once you make sense, you need to move on because you can't stay in that place. Hey guys, this is Stacy Brookman, and I'm glad you're listening to Real Life Resilience, the only podcast that connects you with the world's best resources for becoming a resilient person. Our guest today lost everything and survived a natural disaster at 13 years old. You will find this story of surviving quite fascinating, so stay tuned. Before we discover more, let me share something with you that might change your life. You're not a writer by trade, but you want to share your life story. You know your experiences make you unique. You want to reveal your meshes of hope, love, and victory from your own perspective. But if you're not a writer, how do you begin? You know you have a life story meant to be uncovered. So know this too. You don't have to be a writer to write your life story. To prove it, We've created a free download for you showing you exactly why you don't have to be a writer to write your life story. Grab your free copy today at stacybrookman.com slash life story. I love to hear from listeners personally, and I answer my own emails. So drop me a line and let me know what you found interesting in this episode or to ask me a question. My email is stacy at stacybrookman.com. Now let's welcome Anna Seawald. First of all, thank you for being on the Real Life Resilience Podcast. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. I look forward to our conversation. Now, tell me a little bit because about your childhood and growing up, and you've had some really traumatic things happen in your childhood back in Armenia. So can you give us a little synopsis of where you come from and where you are now? Yes. So... I was 13 years old in 1988 in Armenia. A severe earthquake happened. And as a result, I lost my young mother. My little cousin was burned in in his kindergarten. He was only five. And, you know, my relatives, my aunt, classmates, neighbors, it, it was a big tragedy. Uh, a horrific event, really. And my life was never the same. We were evacuated We were forced to live with relatives we didn't know in a foreign country. We were forced to learn a foreign language and to continue school. You know, for a couple of years after the earthquake, we didn't even come to our hometown because it was that bad. And so we did eventually, you know, there was no home, no running water, no electricity for years. It was, I don't even know how we survived those circumstances. Now, as a 43-year-old living in the United States of America, having a, you know, comfortable, beautiful, peaceful life, it's so hard to believe that it was my life because it was 30 years ago. There's so much distance has happened, right? Time has gone by very fast. And sometimes I wonder, I mean, was that me? Was that my life? 
but I've come to learn many valuable lessons. And I was hoping you would ask me about, you know, the resilience and the lessons I have learned, that kind of stuff, because I'm very passionate about speaking about that. Oh, absolutely. Well, take me back though, before you were, this happened when you were 13 years old in 1988, correct? Yes. Okay. Tell me how, what was your life like before that? Was it just a normal everyday life? And all of a sudden this earthquake came and just changed everything for you? Yes, it was. It was a very normal, my parents were nice and loving and nurturing, a normal functioning family, whatever normal is. They were teachers. You know, we had relatives. Life was slow and beautiful. It was the 80s. I mean, come come on. I loved it. There was, you know, we would play outside for long hours. I was a very active child and study well and just happy childhood. I was really very carefree, outgoing, creative child, I would say. Very artistic too. Yeah. And to lose your mom and your home and and so many other things at a critical stage. At 13 years old, you've barely lived. You're just starting to figure out who you are a little bit. And to lose, you know, somebody who is a key person in your life, how did you even deal with that? Were you like numb for a while or did you try to work through that? Yes, it was. Yes, I was very numb in the beginning because it was a national tragedy, right? It was on a larger scale. Mm -hmm. Somehow it made it very bearable. I don't know how to say it in other words, because if it was only me, I guess I would have been more miserable. But because there was this pain and suffering and just uh, horrific stuff around me and everybody was in pain and suffering, that common humanity, that common suffering made it less, I don't want to say painful, but more manageable. Yes, I did go through all the stages of grief and I was numb in the beginning. I didn't eat. I didn't want to accept the fact that my mother was gone. It was hard. I wasn't able to speak with my own brother about our mother. It was very, very difficult emotionally. And imagine we were not even with our father. After the earthquake, they evacuated us to a safer place, a foreign country with relatives. But my father and the elderly remained there to help and clean the ruins and search and find people. So I wasn't even with my father. So it was very hard. That hardship I'm surprised how I survived sometimes. Yeah, This is why I want to write a book this year called The Other Side of Adversity. Because today I work with parents. I teach parenting classes and I coach them. For many years, I worked with children, but now I work with parents. And I work with criminals and substance abusers and drug addicts and I see that they also have a lot of trauma and adversity in their life, but somehow they end up on the other side of that adversity. And I see people like myself and I'm on the other side. And I wonder how much adversity puts someone in that place on the other side of adversity, what I call it. So I am very fascinated by that. And what goes into that? Like what makes us resilient? I believe because I had very strong emotional 
foundation. I came from a decent household. I was loved and appreciated and I didn't have dysfunctional alcoholic parents or any kind of trauma per se. I think that foundation has helped me in bouncing back after the event a lot faster. Yeah, there's a lot of research about having that foundation um, there was a study on adverse childhood experiences or the ACEs study that, that looks into that and having some really bad childhood experiences and earlier on, like you were 13, but you had a great foundation before that. So that helped to protect you. But yet you still, there was still this tragedy that you went through at a critical time. What do you think helped you through that and come through on the other side in a positive way? rather than, you know, turning to drugs or alcohol like so many other people may have. I know. I wonder that too. I think the family morals and values and having people like my grandparents, my aunts and uncles, having a strong family foundation, even though it was shuttered and we were disconnected and, you know, we were in different countries for a period of time, but I had people, connections, attachments, relationships. I value them so much today because if it wasn't for that emotional support, I don't think I would would have been where I am today. I think because we didn't have anything, we lost everything. And for a period of time, my country was going through war. There was no electricity, no running water, no food. But we had one thing. We had one another. And the gatherings, I remember the cold. It was so cold at home. It, it wasn't even a home. It was just a temporary shelter. We would live, you know, we used to live. The water would freeze if it was like in a glass, it would freeze in the morning. Mm. We would wake up. So we lived in horrible conditions, but we were happy yet because people, neighbors, everybody was that kind of tragedy does is brings people together. We become one and that shared pain makes people more empathetic and more human. And I think that was a big, big support for me uh, as a mm -hmm. child. And I think if it wasn't there, my life would have been probably, yeah, I would have ended up on the other side of adversity. Right. So how long did it take for you to be, to go, go back to your country? What other country were you in? When you were with relatives? We went to the Republic of Georgia, which is a neighboring country to Armenia. I, I stayed there till the end of the school year. The earthquake happened in December. So I finished the school year there. And then we went to Russia, Moscow, because we couldn't come back. There was no, nothing ready for us to come back. So about the year, I would say we were misplaced again. And then when I came back from Moscow, me and my brother, we didn't live like a normal with our dad in some kind of place. Again, we lived with my uncle's family because they had a better shelter type of place, temporary house. Still temporary, right? Still temporary. And my father only received housing three years ago. So for almost 25 years, he lived in a temporary place, which was, wow. meant, which was meant to be for only a short period. But the country couldn't recover, even though the whole whole world poured in to give humanitarian aid and build, but it's, I don't know, it never was rebuilt fully. 
Mm-hmm. So you're saying your dad has been in temporary shelter from 1988 or 89 until just three years ago? Yes. When I say oh. sh- when I say shelter, it was a wooden construction. Uh, it had water and bathroom and everything, but it was just a very thin wood temporary house looking construction. Uh, the English people built that. And yes, unfortunately, he did live there for that many years. Wow. So tell me, how did you get to the United States? Mm, Okay, we're getting to the juicy stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I became a psychologist right after I, you know, after the earthquake, when I finished my college and everything. And I was working in a correctional facility for juvenile delinquents at the time. And there was this program sponsored by the state, U.S. State Department. It's this highly competitive leadership program. It's called Edmund Muskie Fellowship Program. And this was in Armenia? At the time, I don't think that program exists anymore, but it was for the former Soviet republics. The U.S. State Department would choose basically through competition. It was very competitive, multiple tests and interviews and things like that. Leaders in their fields to bring to the United States to provide higher education, graduate schooling, and send them back to make change and difference in their countries. So I was one of the applicants that intrigued me because I was very driven in my career. And I applied in education. Out of 830 people, they selected only three people and I was one of them. So so they paid for my graduate schooling here in the United States. At the time I was 26 and I met my husband, he's American. We fell in love, but I was so driven. I was like, no, I'm going back. I have to make a difference in the world, this and that. And, And I did go back for a couple of years, but you know, we couldn't manage a long distance relationship. He couldn't find a job. So eventually I had to come back and just build my life here. Wow. And so now you help parents. Mm -hmm. Tell me a little bit about your your business and what you do right now? Yes. For many years, I worked with children, as I mentioned, but after I became a parent 10 years ago about, I realized that it's parents who need help and support. You know, I realized that that maternal love attachments, early attachments, how significant they are for children to turn out okay, at least, right? And I directed my attention to helping parents from that day on. And I said, no child should ever, ever suffer the harms of parenting, spanking, punishments, and, you know, hurtful stuff or trauma. But parents don't know. They had their own trauma. Their parents had their own trauma. So it's cyclical. And I made my mission to educate parents, be trauma-informed, and help them to find their true authentic self, as I say, and parent from the heart. So that's what I do today. I educate parents and I help them in the emotional job of parenting. I love that. I really do. So tell me about after the earthquake and you're trying to recover and you went through school and things like that. Did you ever look back and and reflect on what happened or did you just plow through and try to get to the other side and just keep on going? Did you ever take a pause and look, you know, look inwards or look back and try to explain what happened or think through what happened to you? Yes, a lot. I didn't plow through for sure. And I think that's a gift, in fact, because also we didn't have anything, right? There was just 
time. No electricity, no TV, no distractions. It was just very basic. It was just you and some other people and, and your pain. There was no other way but to look inward, but to be with your raw feelings. And they were big feelings. And I started writing a diary from that age To this day, actually, I write a diary, a journal. I started reflecting a lot, writing poetry, composing music, sort of processing my own pain through art, I would say. But we also had friends who also lost their moms. You know, everybody had a loss. There were families that no one was alive. They were families parents were gone, children were alive, or parents were alive, children were dead. So imagine, I mean, after the earthquake, they built those temporary construction little houses, but everybody was, they had losses. So that also brought us together. So we, my friend, we would get together, talk, reflect, cry, and not be afraid of feelings. You know, I learned that, that it's okay. You know, no matter how strong the pain is, the big emotions don't kill you. In fact, you come on the other side so much stronger and with a different perspective. So I learned to love being with negative emotions, I would say. And I don't call them neg- negative. I mean, emotions in general. I took an interest in that and I studied emotions and it was quite interesting. It was fascinating for me, I think, as a young child to go through that. I almost viewed that experience as a science experiment, like a human experiment, comparing control the pain, the suffering, you know, you could see in adults, in my grandparents, everybody was suffering in a different way. And I don't know, somehow, I don't know, I, I was resilient. And so was my brother. My brother is a high functioning person. He lives in the United States too. My cousins, I think the younger generation somehow had more resilience than, than our parents and their parents, my grandparents. It's really interesting that you say that you had the time and the space to sit with your feelings and feel those feelings. Because I think in today's world, we try to pack those in the back of our minds and we try to forget about you know the bad things. We, we don't purposely look or dig into those negative things that have happened to us. And I think that's to our detriment because when you just try to push them away and not get all the way through those feelings, those will come back and pop back up at some point. Or we will maladapt to to that. But when you feel those feelings, which you basically were forced to do through your experience, I think that's a better thing. Yes. What we resist persists, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. True. True. And you, you told me also that you do mindfulness helped you become more resilient. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yes, that I learned looking back. I mean, when you are in that pain and suffering, you don't see all these wonderful, quote unquote, gifts that that you have. But now looking back, I'm like, wow, the way I am today is because of that experience. I don't mm-hmm. take things for granted even little things like sunsets, little birdie in my balcony, the little joys of life. I am very mindful of the passing of time and things and people. So I'm very hyper-focused, I would say, on enjoying the present moment. And I I am very slow and I absorb those things. Even in this fast-paced world, I still live my life differently. I, I view 
life as a gift and it could end anytime. So let's live to our fullest because life is unpredictable. That's what I learned. And it could just disappear in a few seconds and, you know, it won't be the same. So all we have is this present moment. And what are we doing with that present moment? I also cherish relationships a lot because they played a huge role in my life. So if I love someone, if I want to give someone a compliment, my clients, if someone is doing great, or I always speak from the heart and tell people the messages that they need to hear. I don't say, oh, one day I will tell this or I think about them. I always openly communicate with people because again, life is too short and unpredictable and I may never have a chance to say those things to people. Right. So true. Yes. So I encourage listeners to write a letter to someone they have been meaning to make a phone call, a friend, a relative you haven't spoken in a long time. It truly makes a difference when you speak from the heart and open up. That vulnerability builds intimacy somehow. I think we we need that. Mm-hmm. It does. Mm-hmm. So tell me about, uh, you have one child or two children? Just one. One child, a son? No, a daughter. A daughter. Okay. (laughs) So you have a daughter. What are you telling her about what happened or have you? Good question. No, I haven't told her like in full bloom, in full color TV version, because I think she's too young, but, but she asks me questions and I answer them as she asks me and things pop up here and there. And she knows, she knows pretty much that I went through hardship and she always feels sorry for me. Oh, mommy, I'm so sorry. Or things, Mm -hmm. things of that nature. She asks questions about my mom and this year I took her to Armenia for the first time. She's almost 10 and Uh it was pretty fascinating for her to experience the places I've been to, even though it's not the same, like my childhood town doesn't exist. Like I can't take her to the streets and places and say, Hey, this is my school. This is where I, this, Uh there was nothing of that nature. It's foreign for me too, because they've rebuilt so many times for me. I don't belong there. I, I just, I am more lost than found when I go, when I went back after 12 years, I went back for the first time and it was quite, it builds intimacy with my daughter too. Yes. It's fascinating to see because she lives in America. She has a better life. She has not seen hardship. She doesn't know what it feels like to have no food, no water, no shoes, no clothes. You know, those things, it's hard for her to grasp, but yes, we do have conversations here and there. Now, there's a lot of people who go through some pretty tough life situations where there was an earthquake or loss of a family member or any other number of tough situations. What advice would you give them who, who's gone through some of those type of things as far as resilience? Support. I mean, I can never emphasize the social and emotional support, people, connections, relationships. It's just when you are alone with your pain, it's just hard to bounce back. I think as humans, we need one another. That's the only thing that comes to my mind at the moment. And Mm -hmm. allow yourself to grieve. Give yourself time and honor your loss. Give yourself time and don't feel bad bad that, oh my gosh, this is still lingering. I have to be done with this because you need time. Honor that, Mm -hmm. that it's part of our human experience and everybody goes through something, right? We all have losses and unresolved issues or trauma. Remember that common humanity that we all share 
and find support. It's, it could be hard sometimes when you are in that space, but if people offer help or support, accept it. Yeah. Don't pretend that you're strong and you can withstand. I think we cannot heal alone. Right. Oh, I'm I'm very firm believer in that. And you say that we can't undo what's happened, but we can learn to make sense of what's happened and move on from that, right? Mm-hmm. Yes, because the past is, you cannot undo the past. It's part of our story, right? But if you don't make sense or resolve the issues of the past, the past will come and haunt you in your day-to-day life. It will linger and beg for some kind of, just open that door and resolve those issues. But again, once you resolve, once you make sense, you need to move on because you can't stay in that place. It's important too. Well, Anna, those are very wise words. And thank you so much for sharing your wisdom with our listeners. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Welcome to Stacy's Journal. In this segment, I let you peek into my journal as I share my thoughts on a topic or resilience resource. As Anna and I talked, I realized that social support played a key role in her resilience. You know, so often when we experience trauma, difficult life situations, we turn inward and we start to isolate ourselves. Or in the case of an abusive relationship, the abuser often causes the isolation in a million different subtle ways. Ultimately, we find ourselves without strong friendships, with no one to turn to, thinking that no one will understand, thinking that we can handle this ourselves, not wanting to be a complainer, and trying to buck up and be strong for ourselves and our families. Let me share from my personal experience. Bucking up and being strong without support is actually a combination of ego and fear. It's fear saying, I can't accept help from somebody else. I can't share this burden with another person. It's ego saying, I can be strong without help. It's really, though, an acceptance of a very sad way of living. That's unnecessary. Reach out. Develop friendships intentionally. Allow someone else to help you carry that burden. Find the social support you need to get through the tough times. For me, I found the writing group to be incredibly helpful. They couldn't help me in court. They couldn't help me psychologically, but they could hold my story in their hands without judgment. And that was enough to help me keep moving forward. Well, that's all we have for today. Last episode, Melissa Pierce shared her thoughts on becoming a single parent and a widow in the same night. So if you need to know that you too can get through grief of losing someone, you might want to go back and have a listen. Next week, we'll interview Stephanie McPhail, who talks about having a history of bad relationships and how she finally picked the right guy. I love interacting with our listeners on social media. We're on Pinterest, Facebook, and guess what? YouTube. Go check out the videos. Just about anywhere you can hold a great virtual conversation. Before you go, don't forget to go and download that guide. You don't have to be a writer to write your life stories. Trust me on this. You don't need any writing skills at all. Download that for free at stacybrookman.com slash lifestory. 
One more thing, we're having fun counting down the 100 plus most important memoirs of the past 200 years. So our memoir of the day is Not Without My Daughter, written by Betty Mahmoudi with William Hoffer. In August 1984, Michigan housewife Betty Mahmoudi accompanied her husband to his native Iran for a two-week vacation. To her horror, she found herself and her four-year-old daughter, Matub, virtual prisoners of a man rededicated to his Shiite Muslim faith in a land where women are near slaves and Americans are despised. Their only hope for escape lay in a dangerous underground that would not take her child. Check out Not Without My Daughter and all the memoirs on this list at stacybrookman.com slash 100 memoirs. And always remember, your life is a story and it's never too late to start telling it.